Hi, insiders. We're two days away from the release of Pixar's Turning Red, and we're getting an insider's look with director Domi Shi. Set in 2002, Turning Red centers on confident and quirky 13-year-old May. She lives in Toronto with her parents, goes to school alongside her three best friends, and just so happens to turn into a giant red panda when she feels anxious. No confusion here, but this March, it's gonna be May. I was all for the early 2000s throwbacks that this film brought. I even found myself revisiting the boy band songs from those days and sung along just like our character May and her friends do. May is fun and has an undeniable energy. Yet you also see she's in a battle to maintain her confidence in a world that's dividing her. She's a dutiful daughter, but she's also 13 and learning more about herself. Let's not forget to mention her new ability to poof into a red panda. Who said 13 was easy? Insiders, I can't wait for you to see this movie. Here to talk about her new movie is director Domi Shi. Welcome, Domi. Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining us today. This movie brings so much nostalgia, and we want to celebrate that by taking a walk down memory lane with you. Since yep. May is 13 and turning red, what better yep. age to start with? Tell us about Domi as a 13-year-old. You see a lot of myself that age in the character, in Maylin Lee. Definitely a confident dork who was very, very unaware of her social status at school. I had my tight little girl squad of, of dorks and we all just obsessed over Harry Potter and at the time Orlando Bloom in both Lord <laughs> of the Rings and Pirates of the Caribbean. And I, you know, spent many hours every night drawing in my secret sketchbook that I, to this day, have never shown my parents and knock on wood, hope they never find it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. For those of us who were around that age in the early 2000s, so many great throwbacks. Obviously, like the boy bands, the chokers. If you had to pick, what would you say is like one of your favorites that you personally embrace the most? Definitely the Tamagotchis. Yeah. I just remember it was such a huge craze in middle school. I begged my parents to buy me one, but they were like, it's too expensive. So we bought a knockoff one <laughs> from a store. And I remember it was kind of janky and it kept like beeping every five minutes and it kept dying but I was like this is this is a Tamagotchi this is great I, I can play with my friends now but I couldn't do like if you hold two Tamagotchis together like you could communicate with, with each other but I couldn't do that with my friends because I had a janky knockoff <laughs> I love a good throwback we've all been there right like where we didn't get the exact thing like on the list that year right. but it was like we made it work so yeah. Yeah, very cool Talk to us, though, about growing up in Canada, because that's also where May is from as well. The movie takes place in Toronto, Canada, which is the city I grew up in. And I just thought, you know, like it would just be such a cool place to set the story because Toronto, you know, oftentimes you see it in movies. It's always pretending to be something else like New York City or Chicago. But it's a really cool, unique city. Like it's very diverse. Back when I was living there in the 90s and early 2000s, it still had this like town feeling, even though it was so big. And I just thought it'd be really cool to show the world like Chinatown and like the diverse kids that I went to school with. And just this is a window into the life of this Chinese Canadian girl in the in the early 2000s. You really do open that window very well to us, and it does. It hits on all that nostalgia for us. So around the age of 13, though, for you, are you already into movies? And if so, which ones? I, I think Pirates of the Caribbean came out at the time. It was like around <laughs> that time of like Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Pirates of the Caribbean, 
that was huge. And that's just what, what me and my friends were just obsessed with. Definitely Harry Potter. <laughs> like my friends would ask me to draw their, their favorite characters from these movies. So I definitely drew like, I, I used my skills to like try to like navigate through school. Like I would draw a Legolas for like a girl in class or I'd draw like their crush and them like in a swing and I would charge like two bucks or something like that for it. <laughs> I became known as like, oh, like she can draw your crush if you just pay her a couple of hours. <laughs> 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 oh my gosh. It's like you were monetizing. I remember the cootie catchers. Like when you oh, would yeah. like those, yes, yes. I remember yeah. those, but you like took it to the next level. You're like, I am artistically like inclined here. I know. I, was like, I only <laughs> I have one work. skill. Like I'm not the prettiest. I'm not the funniest, but like I can draw. So like for the boys, I drew them like Pokemon. And then and for the girls, like, I drew them like their like celebrity crushes or their like school crushes. And then I would like slip it to them. They would like slip me a couple <laughs> <laughs> it's it's making it really hard to separate you from May. Like the more and more that I talk to you, it's like literally you are one and the same. It's amazing. Okay. In your timeline, let's jump forward a little bit. How do you get your start at Pixar? Yeah. So I went to animation school for college and that's where I kind of got really drawn to storyboarding. And that's how I got into Pixar was through this storyboarding internship that they offer every year over the summer. The first time I applied, this was in my third year in animation school, like I got rejected, but I didn't give up. And I tried again the next year, luckily got accepted. And that was my in is kind of drawing because that's something that, you know, Ever since I was in middle school, drawing people's crushes for dollars, I was, I knew <laughs> I wanted to draw for a living and I wanted to like tell stories with drawings. And that's, that's kind of what storyboarding is. So the story internship was like a three month boot camp. You got like an assignment on Monday and you had to pitch it to like a room full of veteran story artists directors, sometimes producers who will just like sit in and it was absolutely horrifying, <laughs> especially from like introverted girl who didn't really like, I didn't like talking. I just like drawing and just having my drawing speak for themselves, but kind of had to learn really fast how to talk <laughs> in front of large groups of people. And, and yeah, and then luckily one of the story intern pitches Josh Cooley, who made Toy Story 4, he was a head of story on Inside Out at the time and he saw one of my pitches and he decided to kind of like he wanted to hire me and and, and bring me on board inside out uh, as a story artist and so I got hired after the internship to be a full-time story artist on that movie and after inside out I did The Good Dinosaur, Incredibles 2, Toy Story 4 and then I just kept drawing kept wanting to you know like at the same time as uh you know working at my day job as a storyboard artist, I was developing my own stories at home on the side. Bow became one of those like personal projects that I ended up pitching to the studio. And, and yeah, I just feel like that there's just been a lot of really great opportunities. And yeah. <laughs> what a story, even in and of that time, like it's just crazy. What a story that is right there. Like the titles you're throwing out, Inside Out, Toy Story 4. Obviously you're talking about this passion that's emerging of you wanting to be a director throughout that time. Like, is there a moment that you reflect back on? Is there a spark that happened? Or did you always know that you wanted to be a director and that's like what you were working towards? Yeah, definitely not. I, I just knew I wanted to draw. 
and tell stories with drawings. I didn't know that that would lead me into directing. But I think it was around my second year working on Inside Out as a story artist. I like pitched this little idea I had about this dumpling that came to life and this mom that mother hens it to death. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> I pitched it to, to Pete Doctor. And he was like very encouraging of it and kind of gave me that confidence to actually be like, okay, maybe I can actually finish this. Maybe I can make it. And maybe I could potentially pitch it to the studio. Like it's not just like a niche little story that only I would understand. It seemed like he, along with other people I pitched it to at the studio were like interested in the story. So I think it was through him and through like, yeah, just really cool mentors that I had early on that gave me the confidence in my weird, unique voice and those moments where I would second guess myself or I'd like try to change the story because, you know, I, I would be afraid it'd be too, too weird, too alienating or like too confusing. Like I was, I'm really grateful that I have people like Pete to kind of like walk me back from the edge and be like, no, it's, it's good. Trust your, your voice and believe in yourself. So that was huge for me. That's really powerful. Like what you're saying, it's just like the intersection of obviously you're so tremendously talented, but then the right mentors and the right people coming together to keep you furthering your journey, like each step of the way into things that you never even imagined. And here we are, me personally, a big fan of Bao. I mean, I love Bao so much. It's just something that I find myself honestly just returning to time and time again, because it's it's a short film, but it delivers on so much rich emotion and such a short amount of time. And I'm blown away every time how much I connect with these characters. Yeah, so I go off on that. And then also you won the Oscar for Bao. So, I mean, I imagine there's many highlights of hearing that you're nominated, but I have a question about Oscar night. Like yes. you're sitting in your seat, you know the category is now, it's up. Yeah. You're hearing Aquafina, John Mulaney read off the nominees, like they're having their moment. What's running through your mind as, obviously you now know your life was about to change forever, but what's running through your mind at that point, like before you hear your name? Oh, I mean, I'm always kind of superstitious and paranoid that like, even if, you know, everyone around you is like saying it's going to be one way, like you never know. And it, it you know. I just wanted to keep my expectations neutral. I mean, people always say, like, oh, she's happy to be nominated. But it was literally true for me at that moment. I was just like, you know, it's, 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 it's totally fine. I don't. But also, I think my brain just kind of blanked out because I just didn't know how to react. So it was kind of just this like self-defense kind of like just to protect <laughs> myself. My brain is just going to turn off for these next 10 seconds until somebody tells me the results and I'll reboot it. At the time, you know, I was doing the Oscar press thing with all the other nominees and we got really close. Uh, Trevor Jimenez also got nominated. He's also a fellow Pixar story artist, director, and his short was amazing too. So I was like, it's gotta be like me or him because I'm, I'm gonna be happy <laughs> for either of us. But, and then yeah, hearing Agafina say bow, and I was just like, what? And then I was like <laughs> autopilot. Because I just like went up there and then like my mouth was talking, but I don't really know what I was even saying. And the thing was really heavy and I was really sweaty. And then they just, it was just a crazy, and then they whisk you backstage, which is a whole nother like adventure of just like, oh my gosh, just like rooms and corridors and different people that like, like that are hidden from view. Um, yeah, it was surreal. Yeah. 
That is so cool. I love hearing all of that. That's super, super cool. And you know what? That night, it gave you the Oscar, and you were even before that Pixar's first Asian female shorts director. It is just such a monumental thing in every which way. And in this episode, we're also celebrating Women's History Month, mm -hmm. and I package all that together because you're you're a success. You're mm -hmm. breaking ground with each project. Can you talk to us about the experience of becoming a director in a male-dominated industry? Yeah, it's really surreal. And uh, I'm very grateful every day for the opportunities I've I've been given at Pixar. You know, at the same time, it was really scary kind of going into this job because there weren't many people that looked like me <laughs> uh, <laughs> that I could kind of look up to or like email my questions about yeah I mean right now I'm just really excited for the future because you know Turning Red's going to be one of many projects from Pixar and Disney that are going to be helmed by amazing women women of color so it's it's awesome to be like at the forefront of all this but you know I'm also more excited that we're going to be I'm just one of, of many more female filmmakers to come that's awesome. Were there any, would you say like along the way, any females that you looked up to that kept like inspiring you to continue to pursue your passions? Yeah. Her name's Jennifer U. Nelson. Uh, she was the, she was actually like, I think like the first Asian female director of like a big like blockbuster. Like she was a director of Kung Fu Panda 2 and 3. And she's just like a veteran in the animation industry. She's also Asian American. I'm like, I was like, wow, if she, if she can do it, then maybe I, I can do it too. And yeah, she, she's just an incredible filmmaker in general. And then um, growing up, in, like in college and high school, I read a lot of Japanese manga, like Japanese mm -hmm. comics and anime. And there are quite a few very prolific female comic artists in Japan, like Rumiko Takahashi, like the creator of Sailor Moon, whose name I've <gasps> forgotten. Okay, but yeah, love Sailor I, Moon. I with, yeah, right. And they're all like female artists, and they like created these like uh, iconic characters. And you know, like they gave me hope that oh my gosh, if they can do that, then maybe I can too. It, it was yeah, being immersed in in that world and following their journey and their path, and me being like oh my gosh, maybe I can do it too. So. That's so awesome. I love that you had women along the way that you look up to. And then now you are a woman that other women are looking up to. That's very, very cool. And I got to say, yes, I do love Sailor Moon. And I did actually get some Sailor Moon vibes in Turning Red when like the friends nice. kind of like they have the moments. Yeah. yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. yeah. it's so cool. Well, it is needless to say, but you are mastering the art of storytelling from one film to the next. And I wonder though, with Turning Red, just based off the scope and scale of it, like if you actually might comp bow to a dumpling and Turning Red into a giant red panda, just because you go from a short film to a full length film, like talk to us about the transition from having to make under a 10 minute short film and having to like, you know, make it a rich story. There's no dialogue. And then now you're on to turning red and you have characters who you can hash out and have dialogue like what's the transition like from working on those different projects it was a pretty big leap even though there are a lot of similar themes that i'm exploring with turning red that i carried over from Bow. 
like you would imagine the scope and scale of it is, is just so much bigger. Uh, I felt lucky in that I was able to kind of train a little bit with making bow because the pipeline was pretty similar to feature film it was just condensed into a year versus like three to four years. So I had ex- a little bit of experience already, like directing animation, layout, being in the edit room, music and scoring and all that stuff. I don't think anything could have prepared me for like being in front of like a, like a hundreds of people in front of like a 500 person group every week. <laughs> <laughs> or, or it was just a lot more communicating and talking and <laughs> collaborating with other people than bow. But that's what made it more rewarding too, because it's almost like you're you're suddenly given access to this incredible bounty of like super talented artists and animators, and they can take your little seed of an idea and just take it so much further than you would have ever done on your own. And it was just really cool. Like, I just felt like I learned a lot from the super talented crew. And like, I felt like I was learning and and they were teaching me as much as like the other way around too. So that was really cool. That is so cool. I still love though that you're so amazing and like you're creating these really amazing projects, but you're still like a lot of us who you're, you're speaking in front of a lot of people and it's still something that you have to adjust to, but still you're doing it and you're making these amazing projects. That's really, really cool. May is obviously very close, very, very near and dear to your heart. What was it like casting May's voice for the film? Yeah. So Rosalie Chang, who's the voice of May, we discovered her pretty early on and she was like originally like the temporary voice for May through the rough reels and what attracted me so much to her voice was just how natural it sounded like it didn't sound perfectly trained it sounded like a real appealing dorky uh girl um and and she like even like I just fell in in love with that voice and it just felt like as when we met her that that she was May like she she like you know practiced the script a million times before coming into audition she was super prepared and she just threw herself into the role like I loved how she would just go into lines and just say them with the utmost confidence and sass and like still kind of mispronounce it but that's what made it even more charming (laughs) yeah it just felt like from the beginning that she was our Malin I love the character so much. She really gets your attention. She really, really does. And that voice, yes. The attitude, spunky. I love the character of May. Other characters that I love already, and I know everybody out there are going to love just as much, is Four Town. So mm-hmm. talk to us about the research you did. Going back and revisiting the 90s and 2000s boy bands, like what was that like bringing those boys to the screen? <laughs> Well, it just felt like something we had, we just had to include in a, in an adolescent coming of age story, like about a girl growing up in the, in the early 2000s. Like that was just such a big part of any teen girl's life at the time. And it was just really like, we just thought the idea of Pixar creating a boy band would be really fun to do. Yeah. And then Four Towns definitely inspired by, you know, like Backstreet Boys and Sync. O-Town, 98 Degrees, those bands. And just, we want to pay homage to them and how important boy bands are in a girl's life growing up. Because I think like a lot of the times, you know, I think 
the media are like dismissive of things that teen girls really like but you know their boy bands were like our gateway into like the world of boys like they're they're shiny non-threatening soft and kind and it, <laughs> i don't know it just it just felt like in the story about an adolescent girl going through magical puberty that like we needed to create our own like shepherds to kind of help guide me through it <laughs> a little bit and yeah and then you know like it, it was amazing to be able to get Billie Eilish and Phineas on board with our idea because like we just approached him with this concept of like you guys want to create a boy band with us it was probably not a question that they would get you know often that I think they couldn't say no to it but you know also like we showed them the reels we introduced them to may and the vibe of the movie and i think they were on board with that and they've created songs that are stuck in my head just as much as like the backstreet boys and the nsync songs were yes. oh my gosh they've really really done I know. that <laughs> earworms love for town what would be something that you're most excited for fans to see in this film it looks very very unique uh, i'm really proud of the style that we uh came up with for the movie uh we, we like to call this style an asian tween fever dream you know this style reflects the protagonist may and how she sees the world it's bright it's it's like pastelly it's colorful it's romantic um but it's also very passionate and fiery like like her proud of like the themes that we tackle in this movie that you don't see a lot in just film in general, let alone animated films, like female <laughs> adolescence and, and the messiness of puberty. And I'm proud that we don't shy away from it uh, at all. And my hope is that, you know, when people watch it, like for kids and teens, they can see that I, my hope is that their takeaway from it is, you know, that that it's okay that you're feeling all of these roller coasters of emotions right now. It's okay that your life is is messy and unpredictable and, and hairy and, and, and weird and that you will survive and you will get over it and thrive. And, and everyone has gone through what you're going through right now. So it, it's it's okay if if your life is a mess at this at this specific <laughs> age. And then hopefully for like adults too, like they can just be reminded of like how cringy that time was and just like laugh at it. Now that there's been distance, because like before, I think you'd probably be like crying and hiding in your bedroom. But like now you can be like, oh, my God, remember when I got my period at school? Huh? Uh, <laughs> crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Tommy. This film delivers on all of that. It's so much fun. And we're so excited for everyone out there to check it out. Thanks so much for talking to us today about Turning Red. Thanks, Lisa. We'll be right back. Firefox is celebrating Disney and Pixar's Turning Red. The story of Mei Lee, a teen girl who, when she gets too excited, transforms into a giant red panda. Firebox is happy to be different, independent, your free-to-be-you space online. Helping you discover more joy online since 2002. Built for internet lovers, get the Firefox browser today. And Turning Red, rated PG, is streaming March 11th, only on Disney+. Subscription required. You must be 18 years of age or older to subscribe. Additional terms apply. And now, back to our show. Joining us next to take on the Insider Five is Nancy Lee. Nancy, welcome. Hi, Lisa. Nice to see you. We are so happy to have you here. And you know what? I can't do your introduction more justice than you can. So let's start with hearing from you. What do you do at the company and how did you get your start at Disney? Yeah, um, well, I'm currently in the DMED Networks Group and I lead commercial marketing and integrated planning. 
Um, I've been in this role since April of last year, so it's relatively new. And I joined, but I'm not new to Disney. I joined Disney in 2011 in our corporate strategy and business development team. So I actually just celebrated my 10 year anniversary this past September and I got my official Disney plaque, which was very exciting. Oh, that official Disney plaque. I'm coming around the mountain to get 10 years too. So that's a nice, <laughs> nice thing to celebrate. Happy belated 10 years though. That's super exciting. I'm sure you've had a lot of amazing memories throughout the journey. So much to celebrate. And you know what? In this episode that we're so excited to have you with us for, we're celebrating Turning Red, as you know, and we we talked to Domi Shi, the amazing director of the film, and she really was so fun to talk to, sharing how as a 13-year-old, just like the character May in the film, 13 is a funny time in someone's life. <laughs> it's like, you can be a little spunky, you can have your own personality, you can have your own thing. Will you tell us about your own version of Nancy as a 13-year-old? Oh, uh, yeah. Become, what were you like? Being a teenage girl, right, is always such an awkward and uh, fun and exploratory time. When, when I was 13, I was living in Seoul, Korea. I was actually born on Guam, but uh, my family moved to Seoul when I was nine. So at 13, I was living in Seoul, and I was known at school as the American girl. So it was kind of this uh, weird situation. You know, I looked like everyone at school and, you know, I didn't sort of feel any different. But I, I remember there was this notion of me being different and having a different type of background and upbringing. And so people were always very curious about me and I was very much sort of a novelty. But mm -hmm. I, I, mean, I was a Girl Scout. I had a small group of very close friends that one of whom I still keep in touch with, which is amazing. And it was, it was just a, a very sort of almost innocent and a fun time, really. I, I can't describe it any more than that. My family actually moved from Korea back to the U.S. when I was 14, when I turned 14. And so this was the last year of a very sort of unique situation in my life. So I have really interesting and uh, fond memories of that time. And it's, you know, even though it was that sort of awkward teenage years, it's just something that I'll always remember as part of my sort of ability to differentiate myself, but it also fit in in a different way. I'm very much a Gemini in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually really cool, though. That year 13 was just such a unique and special time for you. So it's actually really cool and very in the spirit of turning red. So thank you so much for sharing that. Another part of our episode is that we're celebrating Women's History Month. So tell us what mentorship means to you, Nancy. You know, when I look back at my career, I, I realized that I've always had people in my life who have been there for me and not that I've necessarily sort of labeled them as mentors, but, you know, people whose advice I sought out or um, people I could always just be honest with and be myself um, and that I implicitly trusted 100%. And so, you know, when I think of, I, I actually started um, in investment banking out of business school. And I remember a relatively junior woman, you know, she wasn't sort of, you know, one of the big partners or anything like that. But she, this relatively junior woman became sort of my guide in the investment mm -hmm. banking world. And I called her my Sherpa. Um, mm -hmm. And I always feel like it's so important to find your Sherpa in any situation who can help sort of navigate that the world that you're living in, um, whether it's through career advice or just dealing with specific situations or something like that. So that's that's kind of the mentorship that I've always appreciated and benefited from. It sounds like even going back to turning red and celebrating you as a 13 year old, you've had like really important people along the way. You said you're still friends with one of your friends back 
Ben, and then you have a Sherpa in your life. It's really, really cool and very inspiring for people that along the way, you're going to continue to meet really cool people. And you know what? You yourself are really amazing. I imagine you must have a favorite memory at the company over these last 10 years, or do you have a few that you want to tell us about? I have so many incredible memories. I, I'm actually very grateful. I'm eternally grateful that I've been able to celebrate company milestones or you know, acquisitions that we've done or just uh, people coming into the company and, and sort of things like that. I think the park celebrations are always very special. If I had to choose one, though, uh, in terms of a favorite project, it would have to be my very first project in corporate strategy, and that was the Lucasfilm acquisition. And oh. I was brand new to the company, and this was sort of the first big thing that I was put on. And one of my roles in that deal was to do diligence on the real estate holdings of Lucasfilm. So this was very specific. And I got to check out uh, Skywalker Ranch um, in the Bay Area, did a lot of research on the Sandcrawler building in Singapore that was being built at that time. And, you know, the Presidio buildings in, in San Francisco proper. And I, I'll just never forget, the Presidio is actually on federal land. And oh. uh, we had to research like the probability of an earthquake happening in San Francisco <laughs> and what that meant from a risk profile perspective and our insurance needs and, you know, just so thorough in everything that we did and just really interesting and different from the projects that I had worked on previously. And so that's something that I will just never forget. Uh, we were supposed to announce that deal on Halloween 2012, October 31, 2012. But the day before on the 30th, we heard that the deal might leak. And so we were hurrying to, you know, get it all together and announce it. And I remember getting a call from my boss at the time, Kevin Mayer, early the morning of the 30th, saying, you get into the office right now. We're going to finish this up and announce it. And we were able to get it done and really surprise the world in it. Um, and it was very just exciting and fulfilling and meaningful for the future of the company. So that's something that I will always just take away as uh, a really just impactful thing that I've been able to contribute to at the company. I've got so many goosebumps just from that <laughs> just description of everything that you said. I'm a Bay Area girl, so I know about Skywalker Ranch, like the Presidio, all those locations that you're talking about. And it's just so, so immensely exciting to hear how it all started yeah. with your journey of bringing in Lucasfilm into the company. And where we are now, as you said, like park celebrations are some of the coolest things that we see. And Galaxy's Edge, everything that we've seen as a result over the years from that. So I will personally say thank you for that because that generated so much fun things for fans to experience. So yeah, that's really awesome, Nancy. And, and fingers um, crossed that there will not be any earthquakes ever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, California, you got to just roll with it quite literally. I mean, yes, exactly. Knock on wood that it's all little mini ones, but yes, <laughs> it's part of the adventure. Okay, well, speaking of adventure, are you ready to take on the Insider Five with us and share a little bit more about your Disney fandom? I am ready. I am ready to go. Here we go. What is your earliest memory of being a Disney movie fan? You know, I, I don't have one particular movie memory. My sister tells this great story about how when we were living on Guam, my father took us to go see Fantasia. It was being re-released in theaters. And we went and, you know, it's a little bit of an adult, you know, more mature. You got you the music and the artistry 
And my father's an, a lover of art and music. And so I think he was more excited to see this than we were. But it really reminds me of uh, the quote from Walt that, you know, he made movies for the kid in all of us, right? And so just how that impacted kind of my own father back in the day. But I mean, to answer your question, I think the memories that I have of Disney movies really is more about like the collecting of VHS tapes and yes. those plastic shells and and being very proud of your collection on your on your shelf. And so I think that's kind of what I always remember about like Disney movies being different in that way. And so here we are with Disney Movie Insiders, right? And how that fandom of collecting still remains and that's something that is very unique to Disney. I love that though, the mix of Fantasia, just multi-generational, how it was important to your father and then obviously it's a part of your memories and then VHS. Nancy, we all love a good VHS. Those images on there, they'll always be a standout for Disney fans. <laughs> Absolutely right. I think people probably still have them in their basement somewhere or something. <laughs> I know I do. <laughs> Speaking to one right now. <laughs> okay, next up. You're invited to a Disney-themed costume party. Who or what do you dress as? So this one's easy because I've had plans for the last two years during the pandemic for this costume, and I've not been able to do it yet. So I would be Jiminy Cricket. And I've done all the research on the top hat, the umbrella, the vest, and I love, he's so dapper and I love his style. He's a classic, of course, with Pinocchio and When You Wish Upon a Star, and that's who I would pick. That's gonna be my next Halloween costume when COVID is over. That is very strong. Like you said, a classic, When You Wish Upon a Star. You're going to have to deliver on singing that song as well, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? That's a good segue to our next question. Let's see what you pick for this. It's Disney karaoke night. What song do you sing? Yeah, my my favorite Disney song is from Tarzan. Oh! You'll be in my heart. That is absolutely my favorite. First of all, it's relatively easy to sing in karaoke versus, you know, Let It Go or something like that where you need incredible <laughs> range. Um, but it's just such a beautiful love song to me and it's not overplayed. That soundtrack is so strong. And I love that answer because it's true. It does. It stands out. You'll be in my heart. Such a great choice. I love it. <laughs> if you could only ride one ride all day at a Disney park, which would it be? I know what it would not be. <laughs> and that would be the, the Mickey Mouse Ferris wheel at California Adventure, which is Ooh. the scariest thing I've ever been on in my life. I, I love soaring. I love soaring. I love the California version, but the around the world is something that is so special. And, you know, I don't know if people know this, there are Easter eggs as you fly over different mm. areas of the world. And so one thing that I've been told is, uh, when you fly over Fiji, for instance, one of, the, one of their islands, you'll see a very tiny jack sparrow uh, on the beach. Everything about that experience from the smells of jasmine as you're flying over Taj Mahal and uh, uh, all those details, it's just very Disney to me. So I would pick Soren uh, over any other ride all the time. Nancy, that might be one of the coolest responses to that answer because not only did you tell us what you're scared of, but what you're like excited to do. And then also, hey, go and experience the ride and there's more Easter eggs to experience. Which Disney character has the best life advice and what is it? Yes, this is uh, for me, it comes from my favorite uh, Pixar film, Ratatouille. And that is Gusto's line, anyone can cook. And the lesson for me there is that success or following your dreams 
can come from anyone, right? Or any animal <laughs> in that film, for instance. Um, and that you can follow your dreams, you can go for it. And uh, just because you don't look like a chef doesn't mean you can't cook. And uh, when I think about my own career and, you know, someone who looks like me can be an executive at the Walt Disney Company, the, you know, the greatest media company in the world and lead a team of incredible marketing uh, folks is just, that is exactly what Ratatouille says to me. And so that's, that would be my favorite life lesson. Nancy Lee, you just owned the Insider Five. Thank you so much for taking us through all your Disney fandom memories and celebrating Women's History Month, Turning Red, and your story at the Walt Disney Company. Thank you so much. You are inspiring. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Lisa. Good talking to you. That's our show. Stream Turning Red on Disney Plus starting this Friday. So you don't miss any upcoming podcast episodes. Subscribe and follow Disney Movie Insiders Presents. And while you're there, we'd love it if you gave us a rating and review. Visit DisneyMovieInsiders.com or our app and enter bonus code TORONTO. The code expires March 22nd, 2022 at 11.59 p.m. Pacific time. Membership is required. Limit one redemption per account. Visit DisneyMovieInsiders.com for terms and conditions. We'll catch you next time, Insiders, with more Disney movie magic.